This message first aired on the radio on June 10, 2004. As we continue today in the first chapter of Ephesians, we're going to begin in the fifth verse. Two things impress me about this task that lays before us. First of all is the great wonder and glory that God seeks in his people through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is indeed a marvelous epistle, and it is, uh, raises our thoughts to the very highest concerning our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second consideration that comes to mind is the difficulty of the task we face in uh, giving an exposition and giving exegesis of this very difficult book, the Epistle to the Ephesians. And I say difficult for a couple of reasons. First of all, the language is is very interesting. It's, it's very uh, involved, and uh, some new things are brought to our attention for which we don't have a lot of references elsewhere in the Scripture upon which to depend. It does tie together to the Scripture, but the Apostle is bringing forth new truth here in the Epistle of the Ephesians. It is the apex of Christian doctrine, and so the language itself is a, gives us a formidable task. Secondarily, the Epistle is not well understood historically within Christianity. Many people think that Christianity has been around for so long that it's almost axiomatic that the faith is passed from one generation to the next. That begs the issue and the question and the fact that the faith was attacked early on and that we have virtually nothing extant of writing or of history concerning the faith for a hundred years following the time of the Apostle and we have uh, uh, virtually, uh, and very little after that, by the way, but we have nothing extant in writing until about 200 A.D., except for the scriptures themselves, which, of course, are preserved uh, uh, by God. But we don't have a, a lot of uh, translation help. Uh, we don't have different translations of the Bible coming into play. We just have the manuscripts as we've collected them, and they've been handed to us and preserved by God. And my point is not to go on about how difficult it is to have the text of the Scripture. We have those. Uh, I believe we have the Scriptures in their autographs, uh, in their original form as preserved in the original Greek here. But to say this, there, has, there was lost the understanding of the Scripture. Not the Scriptures themselves, but the understanding of the Scriptures have been lost on numerous occasions in Christian history, not only in the early church, but in the Dark Ages, which were called dark because there was no light of the Word of God, and the Bible was chained up by the Roman uh, system, including the Roman Catholic Church, in its various forms, and the Scriptures kept away from the people. And so only in the last few, couple of hundred years, certainly we would say since the Bible was put into the language of the common man so that he could read it for himself, has the Bible been uh, able to be read by enough people that you can run into a faithful man. Now, why do I say that? Well, we find in the Scriptures that the method of transmission of the Word of God from one generation to the next, that is, is, is by faithful men teaching these Scriptures to other faithful men who are able to teach others also. Now, we have the Word of God that's been preserved, and that's not hard to find a Bible that's a good Bible in your own language. It's not difficult to find. I have a couple of friends staying, uh, young friends, staying with us for this month in my work in computers. They're, they're Russians, and they're from Russia, and they're uh, 
excellent technical men and they have not had great exposure to the Bible and yet in a few minutes I was able to uh, get copies, order copies of Russian Bibles. The, the Bible is widely available today in the language of whatever is your common language. But what is not com- widely available and what is not commonly available are faithful men. The apostle told Timothy, The things you have heard and seen from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. God is faithful to bring you into touch, into contact with faithful men, if that's your desire and you understand the need for a good example and for someone to help you and to impart to you an outline of sound words as the apostle told Timothy that he needed to retain the outline of sound words that he gave to Timothy. Uh, Then Timothy was to find a faithful man to pass that along to. Now Timothy can be just as willing to teach and able to teach as he cares to be, but finding a faithful man, that's a whole other matter. Finding the Word of God, easy. Finding a faithful man, very difficult. And then when you find one, is he able to teach others also? That's another uh, problem. And so this now becomes part and parcel of the difficulty. Yet we do find faithful men, whether we meet them personally or whether we find them in the past, uh, who can help us in the Scriptures. And uh, I will tell you that in my life, God has brought to me faithful men, some who uh, left their faithfulness in print, but others who the Lord brought into my life to help impart to me uh, an outline of the Scripture and a way to walk uh, faithfully uh, whether I walk it or not, they taught me the way to walk it faithfully. I don't, count, I don't call myself a faithful man. I just trust the Lord will find me faithful. But I have met other men who were faithful and committed to me not only an outline of Scripture, but a line uh, and a course uh, which has been good to walk in. And now I can tell you that as we bring these facts to the epistle of the Ephesians, we have some difficulty here because we some things we need to uh, unlearn before we can learn them. And with all that, having saying all those things, and you judge the value of all what I've said there, uh, because I can't, uh, we'll look at verse 5, and it says here, of course the context is, that we are chosen in Christ. We're chosen in Christ. God has chosen us. We did not choose God. We did not make a decision for God. We find ourselves with a mind hostile to God, in enmity by wicked works. But God chose us in Christ, not during our lifetime, by the way. It's not that we chose God uh, while we lived here below. No, we didn't choose Him at all. But He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we'll not go into that any further except to commend to you, if you didn't listen to our previous message of these four verses, uh, we find that the election of God or the choosing of God of us is in a different time frame than the choosing of Gentiles or of the nation of Israel. And so he says, chosen us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. And we talked about the great uh, uh, hope that we have that will be pleasing to God uh, and blameless, not only today, but that we would be blameless in that day at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Here we have several words that we need to take note of. Having predestinated us, what does that mean? Unto the adoption of children uh, by Jesus Christ 
to himself. In other words, uh, here he has uh, what the King James says, adopted us uh, of children through Jesus Christ to himself, so that he is our father also, according to the good pleasure of his will. What is this good pleasure? And uh, what is his will in any case? And now we have uh, to look at some of these terms. Well, the first one starts a fire. It starts a a Christian fire. It starts a Christian fire. He has predestinated us. And immediately we look at the word predestination, and perhaps because of things that we've heard, we don't know what it means, or we think we know what it means, and we think wrong. I, I know that we uh, many think wrongly about predestination. I remember being a freshman in, uh, un- at the university. I was 18 years old, and uh, that's a long way back for me. That's 35 years ago. I remember being a freshman in, in an advanced literature class, an advanced placement class of uh, freshman literature. And it was an American literature year, and so that's what we were studying, American literature. bunch of 18-year-olds and a very nice teacher, by the way, who was very sincere in helping us learn how to read. And uh, I, want, I want you to know that not very many people know how to read. Uh, we, learn, we learn a form of reading when we're... Well, I, we learned, uh, I learned when I was four years old, my father taught me to read, reading stories to me. But uh, today, well, let's just say by the time we're seven or eight, we ought to be able to read or nine. We ought to be able to read in a functional sense. Uh, but then again, there's a form of reading that comes to us where we actually learn to learn by our own reading. And I uh, had the happy experience of that uh, happening to me while I was quite young where I learned to learn on my own by reading and when you do that you've got all about all the education that you're going to get uh, in, a, in a school and the rest of it you're going to have to do yourself. Well I continued to learn how to read uh, I learned again in high school. I learned some more things about reading when I was 16. And then I learned uh, again in college some more about how to read and how to read carefully. And one of the things that we read in that, at that time was the Jonathan Edwards uh, written uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the first time I saw that sermon that it had scripture references in it where I could actually have looked up the scriptures should I want to. Well, I never did do that, not at that time. Since then, I have done that. But I remember this excellent reading uh, teacher, who is our professor, uh, she said to us, here is what predestination means, and she rolled out a common thinking that God has predestinated some to be saved, and God has predestinated some to the lake of fire, and this is what Jonathan Edwards thought. His God was an angry God who Uh, wanted to dangle people over the fire of hell and so forth. And none of this, of course, was true about the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which kicked off the Great Awakening in America and saw, saw so many people who were saved. Actually, the premise of Jonathan Edwards was that you're an enemy against God in your mind, and uh, you are uh, fighting against one who, if he wanted to, could drop you right off into the consequences of your sins, which would be the lake of fire. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants you to be saved, and he has great grace for you. And uh, so many have come away with a wrong idea that God predestines some to the lake of fire, and he predestines others to be saved in Christ. Well, that's not what predestination is. In fact, what that is is a is a 
confusion of the word here, predestinated, which means foreordained, with a confusion of that word with the word that went before, having chosen us out. Having chosen us out. Now, what it is here, God's election is the choosing out of some, and it happens in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it has no reference to you as a person. No reference to you as a person whatsoever. It is not an individual thing. It is a corporate matter. He has chosen us in Christ. That is to say, he has chosen all those in Christ before the foundation of the world, before he ever laid the world down. He had it in his mind, and he chose out the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to find out in verse 10, to sum up all things into him as a man. And so the purpose of man is the glory of Christ. The purpose of Christ is the glory of God. We saw this uh, well laid out in 1 Corinthians 11. God's purpose has to do with his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the benefits that the elect derive, they derive from being incorporated into him. And if there's one thing that the book of Ephesians teaches, it is that incorporation into Jesus Christ is what is what brings about great benefits. And so this election is in Christ, and so Christ is elected in, and those in him follow in history. They hop on his bandwagon. Those who are in Christ uh, receive benefits vicariously. That is to say, the benefits that are deserved and earned by Jesus Christ are visited in grace on those who are in him, and whosoever may come to him. Now that is the election that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that has no inkling of individual merit or individual consideration it has to do well the it does have to do with individual merit but not yours it has to do with the meritorious individual work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits flow to you in a corp and me in a corporate way that will become more clear as we look at Ephesians now it says having predestinated us Now, this has to do with what he does with us. And here is the foreordination of us. Well, who is us? In the context of Ephesians, us is the believers. Us is Paul and those who are with him and the saints, the faithful ones in the churches of blank, including Ephesus, Laodicea, including the churches of God in every place, including even Little Millard Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska, for example, and any other church of God. It includes those who have believed in, the, in Jesus Christ uh, and in, are incorporated into him. Each one now, each of us, has a predestiny, or as the scripture says, a foreordination, that he has foreordained. That is, he has looked ahead and foreordained a, 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 an end. Not only did he cause a new birth, not only is he responsible for the new birth in which we find ourselves getting a new nature, being described here later in the epistle of the Ephesians, but he didn't just bring us to birth and then let us fend for ourselves. He planned out and he set forward a course. He ordained an end. 
He ordained an end. He not only ordained in a beginning, but he ordained an end. And that is what it means, having predestinated us. Now, in Ephesians here, having foreordained an end to the believer, every time we find this word predestination, also known as foreordination, we have it uh, dealing with the saved or with the Lord himself. And when we come back after this brief break, we'll go through the references of this word foreordained, predestinated, that we find in the New Testament, and you will see that the only context always has to do either with the Lord Jesus Christ himself or the saved. God has not foreordained anyone to the lake of fire. He prepared that lake of fire for the devil and his angels, and uh, if you want to go there with them, he'll let you go. This is John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. We've got controversial and good things coming up, so stay tuned. Now, when we come to this this word predestinated or uh, foreordained, here in the fifth verse, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, now we have to also look at the context, what predestination or foreordination is here in the epistle of the Ephesians, and we'll look at it elsewhere. But here he says he has foreordained us unto the adoption of children. I've said it before in this study, and I'll continue to say, as many have, that adoption of children, uh, that phrase here, is not a good one. It's not a good translation of the word, uh, compound word, uh, lying underneath, which is simply the word sonship. It is the word for sonship. When we think of adoption of children, we think somehow of a different form of sonship, but this actually is not anything about that. It is legal. It is vicarious, so I can understand why the translators might refer to it. It might be a good analogy, but I don't think it's a good translation. The word is simply sonship. He has predestinated us unto the sonship by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, the sonship is not simply a matter of being a child of God. It does include being a child of God, but it is not simply the matter of relationship. The sonship that is talked about in Scripture takes into account the forward end of the believer, the forward end of the believer. And the forward end of the believer specifically, when we see this word, the sonship, has to do with conformity to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ bodily, the bodily conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ that will have a glorified body and has to do with the presentation of those who will be glorified in body in the resurrection of the dead at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great subject matter that it has to do with. We find this in the book of Romans chapter 8 where the epistle of the Ephesians doctrinally takes right up from. and uh, But before we look at, at Romans 8, we will, I promise, we'll look at Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, where we fir- see the first reference to this word for ordination. Acts chapter 4, uh, and this is a wonderful context uh, because it's in the context of a prayer. And this is the prayer of great thanksgiving and of great praise that is given to uh, uh, God by the believers as he begins to uh, add to the number of the church there in Jerusalem as they first begin out. And they come together and they pray, and they pray a very biblical prayer. And uh, here, let's look at it, Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in, that in them is, 
Now they incorporate the entire creation and said, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? This is a quotation from Psalm 2. And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, who became fast friends, by the way, in their enmity against the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and counsel determined before, and there's our friend, to be done. There is our word pro or itso, or foreordained or determined afore, before or predestinated to be done. Now, that's a very comfortable thought, that though the enemies of the Lord all colluded and all came up with a plan to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, boy, everybody's there, Jew and Gentile, Herod and Pilate, uh, uh, in fact, the kings of the earth stood up, the rulers gathered together, and they'll yet do that. They'll yet stand up and gather themselves together against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fulfilled, we might say it's pre-filled or fulfilled partly in the Lord's first coming and entirely in his second coming. Here's the enmity against the Lord Jesus Christ. They were gathered together, what? They hatched a plan to crucify him for to do whatsoever God had foreordained to do. In other words, they did not escape his foreordination, his will, and his plans. They cannot, and neither can you, escape his plans. Now, there are those who would say, well, if that's the case, if God is such, if God is really God, and he is able to uh, foreordain such that even his enemies cannot resist, how does he then find fault? And that's a good question, but in a sense, I mean, let me put it this way, it's not a good question, it's a common question, but when you ask it, you've put yourself in a very compromised situation, and we'll see why why it's not a sensible question in just a minute. But before we see why that's not a sensible question, let's look at the next reference in the New Testament of our friend Pro Arizo, or predestinated, which we will find in Romans chapter 8. So when we see it here uh, in Romans 8, it's on, the, uh, it's on the assurance side of Romans 8. We have in Romans 8 uh, the apex of the truth, which uh, we find in beginning with verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, that old nature. For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now here is the two, that two natures discussed, the warfare again, uh, between the two natures discussed in the seventh chapter. We won't go there today. But here it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And there we have uh, the word sons. Uh, and we also have the word adoption or sonship in the next verse. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received not the adoption. You haven't received the sonship yet. The adoption, we wait for that. You haven't received the adoption. You have received the spirit of adoption. You say, oh no, but if I've received the spirit of the of adoption, how do I know that I'll receive the adoption? Well, that is the 
purpose of the spirit of adoption. We'll see that later in Ephesians. You've been sealed into Christ, and the adoption certainly comes to him, and you're in him, so it certainly comes to you. And that is exactly how it comes to you, and it comes to you no other way. And don't you say it does. Don't think somehow that you have eternal life and you have sonship somehow in your own possession by your and hold it by your own power. You have it in your possession by the power of God and he holds it for you because you, you lousy bum, brother, you'd lose it if you could. You would. And so would I. So would I. Uh, don't get mad at me for calling you a lousy bum. I'm a lousy one lousy bum to another, telling you that we can no longer keep ourselves saved as we could save ourselves. Now, we have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but the spirit of sonship, sonship that sonship that is, that is yet forward, we have the spirit of it now, and that's why we cry in our hearts like little children, Abba, Father. That's what it says, Romans 8.15. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And that's the proper uh, thing for us to say, yes, we're God's children. We're his little children, crying, Abba, Father. That's what we are. And we, we groan in these bodies waiting for the sonship. Uh, and that's exactly what the Scripture teaches. Now, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs if we suffer with Christ joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, uh, there is a jeopardy there. You can be an heir of God. You can fail to, to enter into the joint heirship with Christ if you depart from the faith. And that's a, a warning uh, that we find elsewhere in Scripture and throughout Scripture. So there's a dual heirship, one certain, one uh, in jeopardy. Uh, if we won't hold fast faith, if we depart from the ways of by grace through faith, then we'll get the result of works through law. And that's a bad result. Uh, the wages of sin is death, and uh, we're debtors not to the flesh. We don't have to live that way, but if you live after the flesh, you will die. And what does that mean? Well, she that fares sumptuously in this world, he, she who lives for this world, in another place of Scripture, says she's dead even while she lives. So you figure that one out for now, and we'll come to that another place. Now in Romans 8.29, we have an ongoing statement. Actually, we have that wonderful verse of verse 8. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Now all things work together for good. What does that mean? That does not mean all things are good. It means all things work together. Well, how can all things, including evil things, intended evil against us, including insidious plans and plots against us by wicked sinners who work their will today in hostility to God, who are in enmity in mind, just like I was, by wicked works, and who work their enmity against God and, 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 and achieve them, including the death of his saints and the persecution of the believer and all kinds of wrong things throughout the world, even wrong things, sinners against one another. With all that going on, how is it that all things can work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose? Well, here's the answer, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now here, according to his foreknowledge, that God has foreknowledge of us, of course God foreknows everyone, but here it is foreknows in, in the 
favorable sense. Those that he foreknew in the favorable sense, that is, was in approving connection with him. You say, well, he foreknew me, and based on his foreknowledge, he did this and that. Well, you know, what you're trying to say is this. You're trying to say, he foreknew that I was one of the good guys. And according to what he knew about how good I was, he prepared a destiny for me. Do you know that's totally false? When we see, when we talk about God's foreknowledge, we're talking about his favorable connection with us. God knows all things at all times and always has. So even when we say foreknowledge, that is an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism. That is God in human terms so that we can understand him that we can understand the thoughts about him. With God there is no time. Everything is set eternally present before him. He, the past, the future, the present, all set before him as a single monolithic thing. I can't go into details about that because I am not God. I can't go there. With me there is time, and with you there is time. And a God created time. Now we're inside time. I don't know how he created it. I heard a guy the other day say something kind of funny. Time is something that we have, so everything doesn't happen at once. Well, that's interesting. It's true. Well, here's the thing. We now put God in human terms. Said, well, he foreknew. And that's what the scripture says. He foreknew. He knew beforehand. Well, of course, God knows everything all the time. So this is an anthropomorphism so that we understand that God now inside of time, we understand God's movement inside of time, that God doesn't only provide the beginning, and he, doesn't, he, he didn't leave you alone to circumstance now, but there is this predestination. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified according to the perfect will of God despite the ill intention of his enemies, so you live your Christian life with a destination of conformity. Those he foreknew, verse 29 of Romans 8, those he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now this conformity to his, the image of his Son specifically has to do with morphed together to his Son. Now you say, well, what does that, a slow process whereby every day it's getting better and better and I'm more like Jesus every day? The Bible doesn't say that at all. What this is more, much more concrete than that, this has to do with the absolute certain fact that you, as a child of God, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be morphed from this bo the body of this death into a sinless character with a body fashioned exactly after the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is, conformed to the image of his son. Well, the image of his son is a, is a man's image, and we will be like him when we see him. In order that, why? Now, why would God do that? Well, God doesn't do that because you're a great guy, and God doesn't do that to, to make glory that goes to you. He does it that he, that he, that is, that the Lord Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, how can the Lord Jesus Christ be the firstborn among many brethren except that there be many brethren for him to be the first of? Let me tell you, if you're first in your class, and your class is three guys, so what? I graduated first in my class. Yeah, I know, but I mean, you were in homeschool, homeschooled, and you were the only one in your class, so you also finished last. Well, no, that was my little brother. Well, now, that, that doesn't say very much. But if you go to a school of 100,000, 
and you're number one student in a class of 100,000, now that gives you much more glory. And so God is interested in giving great glory to the Lord Jesus Christ that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he saved sorry fellows like me by his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just so the Lord Jesus Christ could be the first among many. Now, I'm happy about that. Hey, listen, I rejoice at that. And he is the firstborn among many brethren. He's going to be the firstborn among many brethren. And I have no problem telling you that he is the one that you need to know as your Savior. Now, you can know me, but I can't save you. And I'm not going to be Jesus to you. I don't want to be, can't be. And if I'm Jesus to you, you're in trouble. I can't even play shortstop for a minor league baseball team. I can't even, I'm not even qualified to drive, taxi, drive a taxi cab in Tijuana, Mexico, where some Jesus somebody else might be able to do that, not me. Where some Jesus somebody or other might be qualified to play shortstop in the minor leagues because he's a good player from the Dominican Republic or whatever, that's not me. But I'm certainly not qualified to be Jesus Christ to you. And a good thing that nobody has to be Jesus Christ to you because he's alive, he's in heaven, and he can be Jesus Christ to you. And that's what the scripture says, firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he predestinated, there it is again, that's our friend Pro Arizo. Those that he destined beforehand, that's what it means, predestinated, it's a good word, but it has to do with the same. Those he predestinated, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Now that's the certainty of the believer. Called, justified, glorified. Your glorification is certain. It's as certain as your calling. Your calling is as certain as the fact that you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is predestination. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find the same word pro arizo, or predestinated, where the apostle says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, and there's the reference to a mystery, but he doesn't disclose it. He just says we speak, we have the mystery. He told the Corinthians, hey, I would teach you about mysteries. You're too carnal. Well, now he circulates this letter we call the Epistle of Ephesians so that we can read it and understand it if we're not too carnal. He says even the hidden wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And there we have it. There he foreordained. Uh, unto our glory, the great mystery which the apostle teaches. And uh, that's something else that goes with his foreordination. In fact, uh, you have the mystery of his will, which we're going to look at here, to enjoy while you wait, groaning, for that sonship to appear. That's part and parcel of the good news along the way to the journey. I know we're talking about difficult things, and that's what we do when we come across them in the Bible here at BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone. Now, I said I'd come back and talk to you about how God does not predestine the lost, and I know that there are especially uh, uh, like those who would call themselves perhaps Calvinistic. Uh, I won't call you Calvinistic because I don't know this fellow Calvin, and I meet him, I'll meet him in glory maybe, I suppose, uh, but I, uh, I, I'm not especially impressed with all that he had to say, or really that much of what he had to say, and I'm glad that I didn't need to read John Calvin or didn't need to meet John Calvin because I had no opportunity to do so in order to get the Word of God, that God preserved His Word, and I have it right here. But I know there are some of you uh, who listen, uh, who are Calvinists, or who listen to 
uh, Calvinist. And, and here's, I especially want to talk to the young Calvinist, or about the young Calvinist, because the young Calvinist, he's the guy that knows everything, by the way. He's a young fella, and he knows everything. He's got an answer for everything, and he is an authority on God. In fact, he is, he, 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 his mind is very large, and he can comprehend all about what God uh, is, uh, even though some of us are still staggered uh, to get to know even some of the simpler things that God has for us. Now, I, I don't say that to pump myself up, but to tell you that you will hear uh, from those kind that God predestines the lost. And they will take it from uh, a misunderstanding and a misapprehension of exactly what the Scripture says and turn it around. There is in Romans chapter 9 uh, this statement that uh, the Scripture says, verse 17 of Romans chapter 9, uh, well, it, it, I'll just read it uh, beginning with verse 13. And by the way, our study of Romans, we took this up a little bit, and I think it'll be helpful to you if you look at Romans uh, beginning with the 12th verse of, of chapter 9. It was said unto her, uh, The elder shall serve the younger. And This is about Esau and Jacob. This was said to Rebekah. And as, as, as it has been written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You see there, Esau is hated. And so, uh, the, but of course, this is the election of God. And you say, well, why did Esau hate? Why did he hate Esau? Well, you can find reasons why he would. But by the way, you can find reasons why he would also hate Jacob. The question isn't really why did he despise Esau. The question is why did he love Jacob? Well, what shall we say then? Is there is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now there is a statement by the way, that you're supposed to forbid. The, the word God forbid is do not let this thought enter your mind. Perish this thought from your mind. That's what that phrase God forbid means. So now, if you begin to consider, is God unrighteous? Let me think about that. You have already done something. What is it you've done? You have set yourself up as a judge over God Almighty. Uh, you set yourself up, just the consideration, just the attempt for you to sit back and say, let me now see if God is unrighteous. I'll be the decision. I'm going to determine if God is unrighteous or not. Let me tell you something. You have just blasphemed in such a way. You are so profane to set yourself up as if judge over God. That is a horrible horrible thought. It is about as awful a thought as you can have. And then you sit around and sit around with your friends and discuss such a matter and take it up as if a professor in an important theological institution, God forbid is what the scripture says, God forbid you would even consider that God is somehow unrighteous. You are unrighteous. Now, he has said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Moses, I'll have mercy where I have mercy. I have compassion where I have compassion. That's with me. That is not with you. That is with me. So that it is not him that will. We have to understand what he says. We have to discover what he says. He is infinitely trustworthy. We don't have to worry about being him, him being unrighteous. We have a hard enough time tracking what he tells us that he does let alone to set ourselves up as judge over God. Only a wicked person would assume the position. Now he says, the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he has mercy. In other words, he has mercy on whoever he will and whom he wills, he hardens. And then we see the hardening of Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God joins in with him, hardens right. Say, I'm, I'm your partner. I'll do whatever you'd like me to do here, Pharaoh. You want to harden your heart? Hey, let me help you out. And that's what God does with, with Pharaoh. He cooperates with him to accomplish the great glory of his own name. Now, thou wilt say unto me, and here the scripture anticipates your so difficult, heavy, philosophical problem that you have, Mr. Calvinist young fellow that knows everything. Thou wilt say unto me, why does he find fault? Who has resisted his will? Now, that's the question. Well, if God has his will, um, God, gets to, God gets done everything that he wills. So how can he find fault? You will say to me, he predicts this. He will say to me, why does he find fault when nobody can resist his will? That, that's a question of somebody. Now, let me say the scripture says that's an illegal question. That is your arrogant, high-minded, wicked self asking a carnal question again, setting yourself up as a judge of God. I didn't make this up. Verse 20 of Romans 9. Read it. Nay. Now first says, nay, no. But, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Who do you think you are to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Now that's a quote out of Scripture. Does not the pot and the answer is no. The thing formed will not ask, will not call into question the Creator. Who are you to call into question the Creator? Say, well, I need to see if he's okay or not. My goodness, what a thought. Now you can read the rest of Romans 9 there, but that is not the thought of predestination. We know, because it's declared in the Scripture, by the way, that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not willing that any would perish. He has provided salvation to every single one. Don't you tell me Jesus Christ died only for the elect. Jesus Christ died for sinners in enmity against himself. How do you qualify for the death of Christ? Well, you have to be an enemy against God in your mind by wicked works. And he died for all. And it's effective to those who believe. Now, that's the way God says that it is. And uh, we don't need to judge him in the matter. After all, we do not judge the scriptures. It judges us. We do not judge God. He judges us. Now, here we have that he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children. We've talked about the sonship by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, silly me, I thought today that it, in BibleStudy.net, today's message, I would get somewhere around the 10th verse of Ephesians chapter 1. But I'm not unhappy that we spend the time the way we do because we have quite a lot here to look at. Now, here again in verse 5, we, we, we've talked about now predestinated, and I hope we helped. I sure hope we helped. And we talked about the sonship, which is this wonderful sonship, which is uh, we have the spirit of sonship right now, but we don't have the sonship right now. The sonship is our hope. It's a certain hope. Uh, it's coming. It, it's coming, and it's going to be uh, another place. It's called the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, it's going to be the redemption of our body. It's going to be the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the living, but the transformation of all. And uh, that's detailed in, in Romans 8 
And by the way, uh, that's presumed to be understood here in Romans chapter 1. So we have that we are, we are predestinated, and we'll look more at how that predestination actually works in our lives. We'll see that in the second chapter where we see that God has prepared works for us to walk in. But here right now, we're looking that we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ, and we have to see what all that means for us and what great assurance that we have. And one of the assurances is uh, God's predestination unto the adoption uh, unto the adoption by Jesus Christ to himself, that's God the Father, uh, to by, through Jesus Christ, uh, uh, bringing sonship of us to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now we have something about God's will. And we don't have to uh, uh, invent what God's will is. We don't need to discover what God's will is. We need to believe what God's will is and thereby be filled with the knowledge of his will. Listen, the knowledge of God's will is not somehow by exploring the uh, earth here below or exploring your relationships with people or anything like that. The knowledge of his will comes by exploring the word of God, wherein we will find the great secret of his will, the mystery of his will. Now, his will, here is said, we, we see that this predestination is according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. This is the good reasoning that he has. The good reasoning of his will. Rest assured. Uh, quit arguing about it. Quit fighting about it. Rest assured that there's good reasoning behind the will of God. Everything makes sense. And if you don't know that it makes sense, you can still rest assured. If you, don't, if you can't reason it out with him at this time, rest assured that it does make sense and turn to the scriptures to see what great sense it makes. Remembering, of course, that his attention and his purpose is great glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's now his good reasoning. His will has uh, here called good pleasure. Uh, another way to put this would be the good reasoning or the good judgment, the good judgment of his will. You don't need to call God in question. His judgment is always good. And so uh, that now uh, it, uh, we read in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now this, this verse here uh, gives us a little pause also. Uh, not that it's real difficult to understand, but in our King James Bible, we have the word beloved capitalized uh, as if it is the beloved one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me first off say he is the beloved one, and uh, there, there's nothing wrong with calling him the beloved one, and there's nothing wrong with calling the believers beloved, as the apostle often does. He certainly is the beloved one, and we are certainly beloved in him. But I don't believe that this uh, uh, is about uh, his person uh, just right here, but more about his work. And uh, we'll look at that technically in just a moment. But notice it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted. Now this made us accepted uh, is, is not the, the best of translations. Really, what the apostle is emphasizing here is the great grace of God. And of course, he's emphasizing the great grace of God for two reasons. Number one, because it is great grace. And number two, because so quickly 
are the believers uh, in the contemporary time and this this age in which we live, even in 2004 when I'm giving this message, at all times uh, God's people are so quick to depart from Him and the way of grace through faith and rush to, away from Him and therefore to the world, the flesh, and the devil and the way of the works of the flesh Well, uh, and the religion that attends to it which is the old-time religion. and uh, But here it says uh, uh, he has engraced us, not, not made us accepted. We are accepted, and we are accepted in the Beloved. These are true statements, but it's not an accurate statement concerning what the Bible actually says right here. This says he has engraced us, or he has, gr- we, he has graced us, or engraced us. He has embraced us with grace, we might say. But uh, it is a verb form of gracing us. He has, you might even say he has super graced us because it's emphatic, but he has graced us in the, and now here we say the beloved, but actually this is a past participle form of the word agape. And we could put it this way, he has engraced us in the having been loved or having been agape. Well, what is the having been agape? It is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in our place. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He agaped the world. How did he demonstrate the agape of the world, that, that he agaped the world? It is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. This being a past participle calls to our mind him having agaped us. So I believe that it's best read that he has engraced us in the having loved us. And of course, when, when, it's, when it's the participle form put for an event, the having loved us, immediately we think of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It puts us in the, in the thought of his great work in our behalf. And of course, that's exactly where the apostle and the word of God wants our thoughts to be for verse 7. In whom we have redemption... Now, of course, you say, in whom, maybe that's where the word beloved picks up. But actually, we've already seen uh, he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And all of this has to do with being in Christ. So in whom we have redemption, of course, attaches to Christ, in whom uh, we have redemption. And now we have the purchase. Of course, this now attaches to our engracing in the in the having been loved. Well, how did we get engraced in the having been loved? Here it is, the redemption through his blood. Now, it's interesting that it doesn't say in the redemption through his life or in the redemption through the giving of his life, and it doesn't say we have redemption through his death, but it's, as some would say, but it says we have redemption through his blood. And, of course, immediately we find that there's the shedding of blood, it is the remission of our sins, and, and right on top of that, it says the forgiveness of sins, verse 7, according to the great riches of his grace. Well, we're staggered at some of these thoughts. The, the redemption has to do with the, the Lord Jesus Christ purchasing us, purchasing us with his blood, or through his blood. It says we have redemption, that is the purchasing of the believer. Uh, by the way, it says we have redemption. This is the redemption. It has got the definite article, and it it signifies that grand event at the cross of Christ. And, of course, this is underscoring the great work he performed at the cross, wherein the 
epistle of the Colossians, we find that he made an open show in the heavenly places of his great victory over sin and death. So here we see the glory mounting toward the Lord Jesus Christ as he achieved the redemption through his own blood, through the expenditure of his own blood. Well, that's it for verse 7. We have a lot more. I hope you stay tuned for our study in Ephesians. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone, and we'll come back for more next time.